This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Facebook is moving to ban new election ads in the final week of the American election uh, near the end of October into November. Very worried about what could happen in that final stretch of the race for the White House. But there's more, and there's a Canadian connection as well to this story. Uh, Facebook plans to monitor the effects of those policies in the U.S. as it prepares for a potential election here in Canada. Bigger picture, as we all know, the messy world of politics bleeding into social media, worries about fake news, misinformation, information, fake accounts, in order to try and swing voters. And remember, it doesn't take much. A lot of concerns that what happened on social media four years ago may have helped cost Hillary Clinton that election, particularly in certain key states. The political world, and frankly much of the rest of the world, will be focused on the United States this week as the U.S. presidential election is slated to take place on Tuesday, November 3rd. The role of social media has been in the spotlight in the U.S. for months, with calls for regulation, a range of responses from the major companies, and ongoing concerns about the immediate aftermath of the election, with fears that the platforms could be weaponized if the winner is in dispute. Canada had its own national election one year ago and enacted a range of reforms to address some of these issues. Mike Powell is a colleague at the University of Ottawa, where he specializes in election law. He joins me this week on the podcast to discuss the Canadian experience, including what changes were made, whether they were effective, what more can be done, and what Canada might teach others about confronting the challenges that lie at the intersection between elections and the internet. Mike, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. We're recording this uh, on Friday, just days before the U.S. election. And, uh, you know, certainly the the world is really focused on this election, inducing, I think, no shortage of stress for for many people, regardless of who you might happen to support. And I think it's fair to say that, that social media has been in the spotlight as part of this in the United States for months. In fact, just this week, there was a congressional hearing involving social media and Internet companies. Uh, and after much pressure, we saw many of the companies themselves respond to at least some of the concerns around misinformation and manipulation. Some of banned groups inserted warnings on tweets, de-emphasized some content, and we've seen more recently establishing some restrictions on advertising right now, the week before election. Now, of course, Canada had its own federal election just one year ago, and social media garnered a lot of attention then too, and the government passed some legislation that was designed to address at least some of those concerns. Now, you've written a great article in the Election Law Journal that examines the Canadian experience, the kind of legislation that we introduced, and identifies some areas where we could still improve. Why don't we start with some of the basics? You know, what were some of the key provisions that Canada introduced into our election law, particularly with an eye to social media and the internet? Thanks, Michael. So the uh, most recent set of reforms comes from the Elections Modernization Act. Uh, It's a bit of a beast, so there's a lot that's in there. I think there's four key things, though, related to social media. And so the the first is the requirement that online platforms uh, of a certain size, basically the larger ones, uh, they have to keep an advertising repository of all the political election ads 
that were run uh, on their uh, platforms uh, around and just before the election campaign. So uh, typical political advertising scenario is you want to place uh, an ad for your candidate on Hockey Night in Canada. Uh, you target voters because you think they're watching Hockey Night in Canada, but everyone else gets to see the content of the ad. And with micro-targeting on social media, uh, advertising, um, an ad might be sent towards a, a group of individuals and the rest of the public would never know and wouldn't know the content of the ad, what the message was. So uh, the ad repository is the kind of big headline thing from the Elections Modernization Act. And the other big feature is the act put in place a, a, a regulated pre-writ period. So um, spending limits and a lot of the uh, disclosure rules previously only applied during the official campaign period. So now uh, with fixed election dates in October, we have the official campaign period that's regulated, but also the pre-writ period. So basically from June 30th up until the fixed election date in October, if uh, the fixed date is um, is obeyed. So um, that imposed some uh, rules on the social media platforms. For example, they had to keep the online advertising repository in that pre-writ period, not just in the campaign period. Uh, the act also um, put in place a number of new offenses. So uh, there's an offense of interfering with a, a, a computer. Um, so hacking of political parties, uh, for example, would be covered by that. Um, there is a rule that online platforms can't sell advertising space to foreign entities who are banned from advertising in Canadian elections. And then quite interestingly, there's a ban on impersonating uh, politicians or parties online. So you can't put up a, a Twitter account pretending to be the minister of the environment. That's why all those kind of Twitter accounts say parody or uh, satire uh, in their little bios, because there are exceptions for parody uh, and satire. So we had some pretty significant changes. How did the companies respond once the Canadian government went ahead and put this into law? That was one of the more fascinating things. Uh, so the advertising repository made sense to deal with micro-targeting. Um, and Facebook uh, immediately said they would comply and they would have an advertising repository in the pre-writ and then the regulated campaign period. Uh, I know there's questions about how searchable um, their database is and is it up to date and what definition they're using to capture ads, but they immediately said they would comply. Uh, Google took a very different view, the other major advertising, not a social media platform, but the other major advertising platform. Uh, and they said um, the way the act is set up and the requirement doesn't fit at all with the way their uh, advertising um, auction system works and it would be impossible to know which political ads were placed. So they were simply going to ban political ads from the platform. So there's some compliance with the law, but they eliminated political ads. Twitter took the middle position where they said uh, they wouldn't allow ads in that earlier uh, kind of pre-campaign regulated period, but they would during the campaign period. So three very different responses from three uh, big online platforms. Interesting. And, and, you know, we're now a year out from, from that national election in Canada. You know, with the benefit of hindsight, how effective would you say the rules were during the, the campaign? Yeah, that's a great question. A lot of the Election Modernizations Act was geared at uh, election advertising. You know, that doesn't necessarily capture a bunch of different ways that political communication happens, like through Facebook groups, right? So you could have groups that are passing political content, uh, around maybe misinformation, disinformation. Um, there's some evidence from other democracies like in Brazil that people are creating groups that seem like they're nonpartisan. They're about sports or music. 
uh, and then they're being sold. You know, we talked about Facebook, Twitter, and Google. There are a lot of other online sites uh, where people communicate, right? Instagram, Pinterest, um, WeChat, an, an important one. And so it's much harder to know what's going on uh, on those uh, uh, platforms, especially ones that are based in other countries where Canadian regulators have a harder time gaining access to them. So I think the big story from the last election is things seem to have gone well, maybe better than we might have expected um, in advance in terms of uh, there was no big foreign interference that we can identify. But part of the problem is that the platforms themselves are a bit opaque for those of us on the outside. So it's hard to make a definitive conclusion. Okay, so we're still dealing with, in a sense, transparency or at least openness issues to fully understand what's taking place. You briefly highlighted the fact that many of these companies, virtually all these companies, are located outside the country and hinted at the foreign interference issue. That was a that was a big issue going in and certainly people reflecting back, especially in the 2016 U.S. election. Um, I, I guess I just wanted to confirm that, that the, the data we have suggests that foreign interference was not a big issue as part of the Canadian election. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, the Canadian federal government put in place, um, you know, they tried to respond to what happened to the, in the U.S. in 2016, right? If there was foreign interference, who would be the one to make the decision to say it's happening and that it uh, should be announced to the public? So they put in place a, a committee, basically, internally, deputy ministers and so on. Uh, and that group uh, was tasked with reporting to the public if there was foreign interference. And they... Um, came, they never actually did that during the campaign. So that's an indication uh, that things went well. Now, we don't know what standard they were using necessarily. So that's where I have some questions with the process, but uh, um, they felt it wasn't needed to, um, uh, to make any of those kinds of announcements. Okay, so you mentioned this committee. Of course, the other big player, the biggest player when it comes to elections in Canada is the, is, is Elections Canada. Uh, and I guess I, I'd, I'd like your sense of how well positioned or effective Elections Canada has been in trying to address some of these issues. Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, we're, we're pretty lucky that we have Elections Canada. Uh, I'm writing a book about election commissions around the world right now. And uh, ours is independent and impartial. So, uh, and it has quite a wide range of authority, which is very different than lots of countries around the world. The U.S. election right now, the Federal Election Commission has not been capable of regulating uh, money uh, in politics, and, and, and that's a narrow mandate to begin with. So, generally, Elections Canada gives us a good institutional starting point. Now, the challenge is uh, they, they operate largely on a complaint-based system. Uh, elections Canada and the commissioner that investigates uh, of breaches. And so, um, like we saw in the robocall scandal around the 2011 election, it, it took people saying, hey, I've been uh, contacted through an automated uh, phone call. So it's difficult for any regulator, you know, given the vastness and the complexity of the internet, and there's a new platform um, every, um, you know, very frequently new platforms come up that people use. And, and what was um, prominent in the 2019 election may not be in the next one. Right. So they have a challenge in actually knowing what's going on online unless there are um, uh, complaints. And so um, there's some resource constraints, I think, that they face. And as a body created by statute, they quite naturally don't want to expand their authority unless their statute changes. Um, so sometimes even if they're broad authority that looks like they I could cover um, some more proactive um, action online, um, that's not always a position they feel comfortable taking. So. You know, uh, there could be some updates in their uh, in their mandate that would make it more obvious um, uh, to the public and would give them a little more authority uh, online. You know, the big enforcement challenge, though, is um, 
if the platforms are based in another jurisdiction or if someone's trying to interfere with the electoral process and they're based in Russia, for example, very hard to know, even if Elections Canada uh, pursues them uh, to the full extent of the law and then the commissioner and then they're, they're charged and all those things, um, is there actually going to be enforcement in the end for entities and individuals who are out of the country, in particular with foreign interference? Sure. I mean, it's interesting. The, the, the kinds of challenges that you identify there are, are ones that we've talked about on this podcast across a range of different issues, whether right. we're talking about privacy and the like. Jurisdiction so often pops up as one of the real challenges, given the globalized nature of, of so many of these issues. Now, now we, of course, have a minority government in Canada now, and it certainly doesn't look like it's going to take another three years for a federal election, much less uh, make use of the fixed election date. Uh, you've identified several ways that Canada can still improve upon the system that it implemented for the last election. Why don't we start with the issue of disclosure and transparency? You've already highlighted that, that there are some challenges there. What more can we be doing with respect to the transparency issue? Right. So if you run an ad online, um, just like if you run an ad on TV or radio, you have to identify yourself as, as the source of the ad um, so that the other you know, parts of the Elections Act can, be, um, can themselves be enforced. Okay? But uh, there's a lot of other information that if we take that um, foundational value of transparency, which is you know, it, it's right at the root of the Canadian electoral system, you might want to know why an ad has been targeted to you online. We might want to know the reach of the ad, who, um, you know, how many people have seen it and uh, where. We might also say that there are some kinds of um, search terms uh, that we find objectionable in political or election advertising, right? So there's lots of talk about um, discriminatory advertising in the housing context, uh, right online. And so um, if a political party says we're going to try to micro-target this ad only to racists, then that seems, and using terms that identify the, the audience as potential racists, that might seem something we um, we don't want to permit in the electoral process. So there are additional things that could be disclosed. Um, another important thing is, is simply the price of ads. And so I don't know if you saw this, there was, um, I think the markup, uh, Julia Angwin had a report yesterday on uh, the Biden campaign was charged more for ads than the Trump campaign, and that came up in relation to the Trump and Clinton campaigns in 2016. And so it, it, the Elections Act has rules for um, broadcasters, okay? and so and and um, and print publications, and they can't charge different rates to different political parties uh, for substantially the same kind of ad targeting the same kind of audience. And that's to ensure it's cheap enough that. Um, if charged the lowest market rate, that ensures it's cheap enough that there actually can be political communication. But it also means that these broadcast entities uh, can't play favorites, right? They might have their own commercial interests that uh, one party winning would further, uh, but they can't charge that party less. They can't charge another party more. Uh, and so those rules don't apply to the social media and the online platforms. And there's very complex ad auction algorithms that are used? Uh, I think the answer is from the platforms as well. We have variable pricing there. I, I think that's correct, but it still means the algorithm is making uh, decisions about pricing uh, that could have an impact on the election. So I'm not arguing they should be treated like broadcasters necessarily for the broader kind of purposes of Canadian law. That's a much bigger debate. You're much more of an expert on that than I am. But for the purposes of election law, there should be disclosure um, around pricing. 
that's a that's a super interesting example and uh you know we've we've grown accustomed to the ad model for digital advertising that that is fluid and is market based but uh taking some of the conventional approaches that sort of fairness in pricing aspect for electoral advertising and finding ways to bring it to social media uh certainly i think has a has a great deal of appeal that's the cost side the the flip or the other side of the coin on that very issue, of course, is how much people are spending. And uh, to what extent do we know about spending and more particularly the kind of spending limits that we often see in other media? Should we be looking at spending limits or some, some form of addressing spending when it comes to this venue as well? The Supreme Court of Canada said multiple times, uh, Canadian election law is um, defined on an egalitarian model. So that includes contribution limits. If you have a lot of money, you can't influence politicians disproportionately, but it also includes spending limits. And the spending limits are pretty strict on what are called third parties, which just means interest groups, could be an individual, could be a union, could be an environmental group, could be a corporation, uh, and pretty strict rules on political parties, total amount they can spend during the election uh, campaign. And so um, the problem um, that social media raises is that it's so much cheaper than TV and radio advertising. So the, the number for the total spending limit kind of it's matched to the reality of how much parties spend to do a nationwide campaign. They run tours, they run all those things, and, but also TV advertising, which is one of their major, major uh, expenses. And so because social media advertising is so much cheaper uh, it actually, the spending limit doesn't really restrain how much advertising happens online. And the political scientists talk about a uh, permanent campaign, right? It's not just in the campaign period that the parties and the interest groups um, run ads. It's, you know, uh, seven days a week. And so um, the permanent campaign in combination with social media means there's just a flood of ads online and the spending limit um even though it's sort of you spend, you can't spend very much uh, by American terms. If you look at how much to spend in a Canadian election, it, it, it's much smaller, but it doesn't have an impact on the social media advertising side. And so I proposed in that election law journal article that you um, um, kindly brought up at the beginning um, that we should have a separate spending limit for social media um, that's different from the other, the broader spending limit that the parties and the interest groups face. The other issue is just that uh, I think a lot of the spending that happens on advertising online isn't captured because the definition is, you know, that you're going to pay money to CBC to place an ad on Hockey Night in Canada. That's how the system is set up. And what does that mean for boosted or sponsored content, right, or a promoted tweet or paying an Instagram influencer, all these kind of new ways of political communication where money is changing hands? They probably are caught under the existing definition, but it hasn't always been, uh, if you take an expansive uh, view, but it hasn't always been interpreted that way by a parliament or by Elections Canada. So uh, a social media spending limit and then making sure we're actually capturing the ways advertising happens online uh, in 2020, I think would both be helpful reforms. Really interesting to, to bring in some of the, the, the kind of changes and, and new developments that we see being created as opportunities, but also uh, leaving sometimes the regulatory system lagging behind. Now, that that, pa that paper that we've now mentioned a couple of times also talks about social media regulation. We are seeing a lot of talk right now in Canada around regulating social media companies, internet companies, whether it's cultural policy, hate online, support for news, and potentially even news regulation. What do you think is needed in this area when it comes to election? 
Yeah, that's the big question. And, uh, you know, the Department of Justice announced antitrust action against Google recently. And there's talk whether the FTC will have similar, um, something similar to say around Facebook. There's this whole debate about are they broadcasters or utilities or um, something different. So, you know, that, that that's the big question that's out there. My pitch is usually that we have to look at elections as a kind of distinct and separate uh, context. So we have these broad you know, broad freedom of political expression um, or freedom of expression, um, but it works a little bit differently in the electoral context. And, and we have to also look at platform regulation a little bit differently in the electoral context. So if you're trying to go after um, foreign interference, right, and someone is based in, in Russia or another country, you have very few levers uh, over those individuals or entities. If they're trying to advertise or place content on uh, the social media platform itself, though, um, I think where that pushes us and, and where Parliament did not go in the Election Modernization Act is to have more rules that apply to the platforms themselves. Uh, and so, you know, if you want to start an Airbnb account, right, I, I scanned my passport so they knew who I was. Um, there's an offense that says Facebook can't place foreign ads or, or social media platforms in general, but Facebook as the main communications network for that. But the, there's no requirement of particular steps they have to take and due diligence they have to follow and identify, making sure it's a Canadian who's advertising to Canadians, um, which is the only thing that's allowed under election law. So I'd like to see more regulation on the platforms. And then, you know, the, the important thing here is that um, this debate about big tech and monopolies and, and uh, how that fits with democracy is... You know, we're talking about political communication and the decisions made by a small number of people, mostly in, you know, in California and Silicon Valley, can have a huge impact on um, what pol political ads that are paid for or even just what political speech is seen by Canadians. And, you know, someone changing the algorithm for totally different reasons, for uh, commercial reasons, in response to something happening in a different jurisdiction, you know, it might mean that a particular Canadian political party's ads simply aren't seen, right? Or they're, they don't get the same reach. Uh, or that some misinformation or disinformation from a foreign entity is disseminated uh, massively and has an impact on a Canadian election. So, you know, the kind of uh, debate between public regulation or private regulation, I think, we have to update our uh, analysis, and it's, it's public regulation of speech has downsides, but so does private regulation of speech by a small number of entities that are not Canadian. So uh, that is a, a, an issue we have to take seriously. So um, that pushes me at least more towards legislation around elections that is based in public debate and public uh, uh, values to make sure that there isn't an unregulated space on the social media platforms in comparison to a heavily regulated space on uh, TV um, and radio. So it's it's a big debate, um, but I think we can take the tools that are already there in Canadian election law and simply apply them in online. That doesn't dramatically transform how the platforms operate, but it might have an impact on the fairness of uh, Canadian elections. Yeah, no, I mean, well, it's a debate, obviously, that's playing out across a number of different issues. And, and you know, I think you make a really compelling case that uh, that uh, that fair elections and the rate, the role of regulation is ought to be an essential part of that same discussion. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't raise the issue of privacy here, voter right. privacy, and particularly the use of our information by political parties. Where are we at right now on that issue? And, and where should we be going? Yeah, well, the... Um 
uh, privacy legislation uh, covers, you know, the vast, vast majority of entities uh, in Canada with, with only a few exceptions. And political parties are one of those exceptions. They're not covered by either the public or private sector federal um, uh, legislation. Um, and so the Election Modernizations Act says now and requires that the parties have to have a privacy uh, policy. And the act doesn't set any particular um, you know, standards, fair information principles, or, or some other standard for the um, the privacy uh, policy. So it's really pretty deficient. So it was a good step forward in the Elections Modernization Act, but doesn't go uh, far enough. And so, you know, the parties need to be able to communicate to voters. They need to be able to uh, send their messages out to the public. That's something we, we shouldn't frustrate or stop. But parties have databases. They collect enormous amounts of information about voters, including online on social media platforms. Uh, you know, if someone knocks on your door um, there and asks you who you're going to vote for, have you already voted, right, during a campaign, um, they're collecting that information. They might look and see, does it look like you have kids? Do you have a car in the driveway? Is it a house or apartment? There's lots of information they collect door to door, but they collect tons of it online too. So, you know, congratulate this politician on uh, the birth of their child. It's a nice sentiment. They're also collecting data on that. What messages they send out by email cause you to donate money and how much they collect message uh, information on that. They scrape data from the platforms potentially. So we don't um, uh, really have any checks on how that information gets used once it's in the hands of the parties. That's a huge problem. And uh, we've seen hacks of political parties around the world uh, happen recently and prominently in Australia. Uh, if a political party in Canada, I think, was hacked and the data about voters that they have was uh, spread online, I think that would be um, really damaging for the trust that Canadians have in their that party, but also the political system as a whole it would have really bad repercussions. So I think just on public policy grounds, there should be privacy uh, rules with teeth. But I think it's also in the interests of the parties to put in those rules because it, it gives them incentives to uh, adopt better practices. We're in strong agree agreement there. That, that That's clearly one area where we can improve. Uh, why don't we wrap up uh, with this question? I mean, we, we obviously have areas for improvement, and you've highlighted a whole bunch. Uh, but in a sense, how do we stand, do you think, relative to other places? Uh, is Canada, is the Canadian experience, you know, one that has much to teach the rest of the world? Or, or are we still at a, in a spot where we need to be looking elsewhere for examples about some of the kinds of things that we ought to be doing? I think the challenge in all the many discussions that have happened in public policy circles over the last few years is it's hard to look around the world and find a, an example and say, well, this is the way to regulate social media uh, in order to have fair elections, right? Or the way to approach the regulation problem. So, um, you know, Germany and France have taken action, but it they, they, you know, makes it easier to take down unlawful content. But some of those rules it'd be very hard uh, to see how they would be consistent with the Canadian Charter of Rights and freedom of political expression and freedom of expression more generally. We have very robust protection for freedom uh, of expression. And so it's it's some of our the other democracies might look to, um, uh, the, the constitutional context is just different uh, from a Charter of Rights and freedom of expression point of view. You know, federalism has also played a role in, you know, in Canada having to come up with its own unique response. And so I think in Ottawa, some of the reluctance to take broader measures 
uh, to regulate some of these problems that, that we've identified, um, it's because there's division of powers concerns, right? What can the federal government do? What can parliament do? What can the provincial legislatures do? And so uh, I tend to think those are not as serious as some people think, and there's a lot, a big role for parliament, but there are a lot of concerns about uh, which level of government can do what uh, online. And that's also, I think, slowed things down. So um, Canada's I think taken a lot more action than some other uh, places, but it, you know it hasn't gone anywhere close to uh, far enough. Um, you know the ad auction pricing is an issue we've talked about. Foreign interference, we took some serious steps there that I think were quite helpful, but um, I'm still not that confident that we have a handle on what's happening on the platforms. Um, and then you know micro targeting, I think we could have taken much more aggressive action there. So there's the advertising repository. You know, good step forward. Um, you know, but I think where the conversation's going is—is is it even helpful um, to have micro-targeted political ads at all, right? And so I have no uh, issues with micro-targeted ads trying to sell sneakers on Facebook. That's a totally different thing. Um, but should political ads be more transparent? Does it help the political conversation if um, they're going to a narrow segment? Uh, of the population, the, the ad repository makes them a bit more transparent, but uh, it's still the incentives are there to gear more inflammatory ads, maybe at a smaller segment of the population, rather than talking to everyone as a whole. So maybe you could still advertise to everyone in the electoral district, but not at a more granular level than that. So there's still a, a long way, I think, uh, uh, to go, but it's, it's the constitutional context and just how new some of these issues are um, that made it a real challenge for Canada um, when I think people uh, in the policy world looked looked at the other options around the globe. Wow. Uh, absolutely fascinating space and one that quite clearly is going to continue to be incredibly important, both for, for our election and elections around the world, including, of course, the one that's about to take place this week. Mike, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I enjoy that. Thanks a lot. I appreciate uh, your time and uh, I always enjoy the pod, so it's fun to be on. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron Leboy. Music by the LeBoy Brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.